Plumley Pod, episode 42. Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education, the Plumley Pod. Hello and welcome to the Plumley Pod. I'm your host, Sarah Plumley, and today's special guest is choosing to remain anonymous, and very shortly you will see why. I'm going to call her the secret art professor because I think that's a good descriptor. And what interested me most about the secret art professor was this quote, teaching creativity out of kids. Professor, is this what we are doing in our academic institutions, literally teaching the creativity out of the children? Yes, I think so. Thank you very much for having me, by the way. It's nice to be able to chat about this. I think it's really important to discuss as well. And in terms of creativity, then yes, we are teaching it out of kids, not just in higher education and further education, but in schools in general. And even though some schools still have art and elements of design in the curriculum, they're not actually approaching the techniques and skills that would be really helpful for kids in general in their life, not necessarily within being an artist or a designer, but just skills that are really helpful in life, I would say. And I think that comes from poor teaching, teachers who've been taught by teachers who've been taught by the same people with the same ideals. (laughs) And we're now seeing the outcome of that. And it's a shame. We're seeing kids really lost with their creativity and resilience and how they build these skills as well. Resilience is one of those greasy, creepy words, isn't it? In my opinion, that's been stolen and it's been changed to be about something else because all of this talk about resilience, well, I don't see a whole lot of resilience. What about you? No, I'm not seeing any resilience at all. And I think that comes from not just creativity, but everything at school is, we were just discussing this before we started, the whole idea of, I suppose, failing, but also making mistakes, taking risks and letting yourself look a bit silly in front of people and sometimes drawing does that you know or sometimes art and design and all those kind of skills do that and when you get kids who are two or three and you hand them a pencil they're not scared they will draw they love using the tools playing there's no self-consciousness at all and what drawing becomes often in schools at that age in primary school is a reward so finish your whatever task and you'll get to draw And it's not actually seen as the thing that's helping drive all the rest of it. And from a very early age, if you just left kids to do that, there'd be less self-consciousness about their hand-eye coordination, their managing of writing skills, you know, their thinking skills. And art helps them to understand the world around them as well when they're drawn. Tell us more about that because people, and I'm guilty of this slightly, not these days because I've now done reading and I have people like you to teach me better. But I used to be a bit ignorant about drawing and think, oh, it's nice. Some people can do it. Some people can't. Like, yeah, it's a reward. After you finish your real work, then you can go and draw. How patronizing, right? How terrible. But why is it? Sell it to people who might be a bit unsure like me about drawing. I'm a diabolical drawer. Anyone who's been to one of my maths lessons (laughs) will know just how terrible a drawer I am. It's almost like a badge of honour at this point. It's certainly a running joke. How can you sell to us the true meaning and the true importance of drawing? What is it about drawing that is so vital for development and education? Mm -hmm. As I said, once you get kids with some sort of tool, pen, paintbrush, whatever it is, they're really unselfconscious and they start kind of playing around. But what we've discovered is 
kids, when they first start drawing, there's almost a pattern that happens. So you get lots of mark making initially, sketches and lines and dots and things with felt tips on the walls, whatever, whatever they can find. But then after that, they start to try and piece together their understanding of what's going on around them. So the first thing that they ever learn is to close a circle. And you'll see kids doing this all the time, maybe around about three, four, but it can be later, younger. And when they learn how to close that circle, they've then learned how to do a shape. And from there, they can start to understand more about the world. So they've learned a shape and that kind of progresses. Once they've done that, they learn about inside and outside as well. And they start to understand what's inside, what's outside, inside the circle, outside the circle, all those kind of things. And it just builds and builds their understanding. But while they're doing that, they're also starting to build on their hand-eye coordination. And they're starting, once they've formed that circle, they've started to form the letters, really. They're starting to understand how to form letters and how to control their hand, how to work with the tools. And what's been discovered is when kids are working with different instructions, so if they're asked, for instance, to draw a map, they might choose a different tool. So they might decide they'll choose a pen, for instance, or a felt tip pen or charcoal or something. And they make those critical decisions to do that. So they're thinking about how to make these things all the time. And that's their own voice coming through about how they do it. And then from there, we've discovered that what happens is that later on, if you ask kids to maybe explain some instructions to somebody, and there was a research paper done on this, they took one set of children, explained how honey was made, and they just talked them through. And then the other group, they talked them through it. But while they were talking them through it, the kids were drawing it as well, just drawing quick notes. And then they let them go away for a break, came back, and the group that had drawn their notes could remember so much more and could explain things better because they got their thoughts together in what they were doing. So you can see how this all forms together for mark making, writing, pulling your thoughts together, making your own mind up about things, making decisions. You're starting to form all these things just within creativity and just kind of expressing yourself. And equally, yes, you're expressing yourself and your own personality and how you see the world because everyone sees it differently. So if I ask someone for a particular, if I sort of show a white piece of paper indoors, there's artificial lighting, white paper looks totally different. I take it outside, it looks completely different to somebody else and they'll have a different take on what they saw. And so the fascination begins with how we're seeing things and how each individual is consuming all the time the information. So yeah, just at the start, that's just the spark of it. That's just the beginning. It's amazing. It shocks me having heard that, that we pay so little attention, in fact, no attention to it. Like you said, it's some kind of patronising reward. I just go and draw like, like it's nothing, like it doesn't matter. And yet all of these crucial sort of early years development, which is, that was like a really big buzz phrase in education, has been for quite some time, early years development. All of this garbage that's talked about that, especially with regards to things like the national curriculum. And actually, when it comes down to it, they're not doing what it says on the tin. They're clearly not doing what they profess to be doing because all of these things are vital. What you just said about what is inside the shape, what is outside the shape, all of these really important concepts. And then, of course, seeing things from other people's point of view, trying to see things through someone else's eyes. Wouldn't that be a useful thing in real life, especially these days? No? <laughs> what do you make of that? In your opinion, what is the reason for no kind of professionalism around the teaching of drawing to very young children? I think there's a lack of quality within art education. I think 
we've kind of lost the notion of beauty and holding that quality. And what we've now discovered after the 60s, 70s is we started with this conceptual art. And that's when I think <laughs> that's when I think we lost a lot of the quality and the beauty within our teaching. So originally it was very much that you would be in an art class and you'd be taught how do you measure, how do you, you know, you'll have seen artists with their hands out and their thumb out and their pen and they're kind of measuring things and they're measuring everything. And there is a kind of formula to be able to draw. You know, it does help. And once you've got that and then you've got the confidence, you'll be able to draw anything. But that side of it became very much repressed and it was all about being conceptual and it was about Duchamp's, the kind of urinal that we had and various other things and Tracy Emmons' unmade bed and it just kind of kept developing, kept developing. And we lost a lot of the beauty and the way that we're seeing things. And that's where I think the teaching was lost because these teachers were then taught that's what you teach and it just continues on. And it's kind of laughed at, I suppose, that type of teaching, the kind of really formal, this is how you measure. And students are always being told, loosen up, you know, loosen up what you're drawing, loosen up your image. And actually, they need to tighten up before they can loosen up. <laughs> they need to tighten their skills and understand the basics. You have to know the rules and know them well before you can break them, don't you? Yeah. Isn't that the same in anything? That's like saying, oh, just go and act. It'll be fine, darling. <laughs> yeah. No, it really won't. You need a technique. First of all, you can't be heard at the back of the auditorium if you've never had, probably if you've never had any kind of voice training. It's extremely technical. And unless you have the discipline and the desire to master those techniques, you then don't get to be creative because you've got nothing to... It's like having no foundations, isn't it? You've nothing to build upon. Is it the same in drawing? Yeah, exactly. If you took that kid that was making all those mark making and things and you just let them run with it and you never stopped them and you never said to them that it was seen as a reward or you told them that doesn't look like a cat or that doesn't look like a tree or whatever and you start to tell them that they need to ground their tree and they need to put it on some grass and all the rest of it then they become self-conscious they will do that themselves they will slowly start to understand the world around them and that will come slowly whatever age you do that and I can take adults now who will still draw like that but slowly, as you give them the confidence, it will progress. And you end up with some beautiful results when you get adults kind of coming back to drawing. And then they find that other things become easier, gathering their thoughts or writing or just lots of things like that. So you can take anyone and get them to actually draw, but they need to know the basics so that they feel confident moving on to the next step and the next step. And it's just building blocks. It's like anything. It's just small steps lead to the progress. So instead of pointing out that the tree's not on the grass and it should be, it's not grounded, how do you go about sort of coaching? How do you teach somebody without kind of making them feel self-conscious and stupid for not putting their tree on the ground? Like how do you, what kind of things do you say to them? I suppose you can just give suggestions, which is often what we do, especially where I'm working and in the kind of level that I'm working at. It's much easier to discuss suggestions and how things can be. I'm not working at that level, obviously. But with kids, I don't think I would even say. I think I would just let them find that out for themselves because they do understand eventually. And you see that in kids. I see my nephew drawing and originally he was drawing with, yeah, the tree was floating and the grass was a, just a line and, you know, the usual. And then slowly I watched it and no one was kind of pushing. And he just suddenly realised that actually you need to ground things. You need to put them down on something and that makes it look more realistic. But equally, he quite liked when it was, he thought it was really funny sometimes to have a dog floating about but that's great because that's imagination and that's fine. So people get far too caught up in 
the kind of idea of what art is and what is creativity as well, I think. So are there a, a series of basics that you can sort of teach in a sort of relatively formal manner to enable people to have the tools to then be creative? Is that how the system or the learning of drawing works? Absolutely. I think if you let people, they will just naturally gravitate towards eventually doing it, but we don't. We kind of stop people. They become self-conscious, usually around about 12, 13-ish, if they're not kind of particularly not good at it, but they just maybe don't draw as much possibly. They become self-conscious and stop, and then they don't draw again. There's so many adults that I speak to and I tell them what I do, and then they say to me, oh, I can't draw. And that's immediately what they say. (laughs) And the thing is that Everyone can do it. Everyone is creative. And I try to explain that. I've got a friend who put it really well, that everyone's creative. We just all do it differently. So you might have a farmer in a field with a tractor and the fan belt breaks. He used to think quickly about the tools he's got on him. How does he work with those tools? He's miles from the farm. There's no one going to come and help. He needs to work out how to solve that. And that's just creativity, but just using your brain in a different way. And so everyone is creative, but we're all just doing it differently, basically. So yeah, you can kind of teach that level of creativity to anyone but there's basic skills of just learning to be comfortable holding a pencil and often people come not knowing how to hold a pencil and there's different ways of doing it for achieving different results and it's letting them understand that it's maybe not the same way you hold for writing you know so there's lots of different short exercises to build up confidence. That's wonderful. One of the moments when I realised that anybody could draw that you were telling the truth was my own experience with cursive handwriting. I had abysmal handwriting all the way through primary school, secondary school, sixth form, absolutely appalling. I was very lucky that computers became a decent, reasonable price by the time I hit university because Lord help the professor that would have to read my abysmal scroll. But I didn't actually believe that there was anything that could be done about that. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I, I took proper classes uh, one-to-one in handwriting and I've kept my originals every single lesson the first 30 lessons I took I've got all of the work and all of the homework and some of them are diabolical I know five and six-year-olds and I'm not exaggerating for dramatic effect I know five and six-year-olds that can do better than that and when I show people I now teach cursive and when I show people these originals they almost don't believe it like I'm telling the truth this is my look I've got the dates on it this is my stuff but it looks ridiculous. So that's great for my students because it gives them confidence because I've not yet met anybody who's worse than I was when I started. And yet I now have quite a pretty script, quite a beautiful script. And that's when I realised, well, if I can learn that discipline with letters, surely I must, if I did the proper learning, be able to draw too. Is that is that right? Is that where you're coming from? Absolutely. So doing cursive is just another example of calligraphy and writing and that's all part of the same thing so and it's all about creativity and you find your own voice so your kind of writing handwriting although you've learned in a particular system will look different from someone else who's learned the same system and that's just your personality and your take on it coming through and that's exactly like kids drawing you know that's exactly the same way so you can give them the same thing and they will interpret it differently. And again, that's another nice way of getting them to think about everyone seeing things in different ways and the nuance of that as well. I'm conspiratorial about these things. I can't see how it's not deliberate. For me, they don't want children seeing how different other children think and are because we're supposed to believe that we're all the same and we're all equal and all of this garbage, aren't we? And that, for me, 
the things that you said already about the early years development, the hand-eye coordination, shapes being the precursor to letters, I think about that. But then I also think about the weird and wonderful dreams that I experience. I see amazing pictures, and usually they're interiors of houses or castles in in my dreams. And it's quite funny because I am the worst interior designer in the history of the world. You wouldn't trust me to even paint a wall with one colour. Like I can't do anything like that, apparently. And yet I see these fantastic interiors in huge detail. And I can recall them. I could explain it to somebody else. Maybe they could draw it. But there's a block there, is there not? Shouldn't I have learned the skills to be able to draw that myself? Isn't that what should have happened? (laughs) I mean, there could well be. The fact is that the way that we imagine things, in fact, I was speaking to some students about this the other day, the way that we imagine things is very different for lots of different, for everyone. But one of the things is that some people, if I got people just now to think about an apple, some people in their head would imagine a very vivid image of an apple, red and shiny and kind of or green or something, and they'd be able to see the leaf and the stalk, etc. Some people would see it in black and white, and some people wouldn't be able to imagine an apple in their mind at all. And that's just the way that is. And, and we have some creative, really creative students who can't see things and visualise things in their head at all. And then there's other things about, so if you get a message coming through when you're reading it back, do you read it in the person that you know's voice or do you read it in your own voice or is there no voice? So everyone's seeing things and imagining things so differently. And I think you're right. They're almost teaching this out of us in a deliberate sense because it means that When you start to question these things, you suddenly realise that we're all connected with our ideas, but we all have very different ideas. We're very individual. And equally, all of these things that we're building on allow us to critically think about things as well and question things. And that's not what they want. (laughs) They want. They want you to all be thinking the same thing. And if you're all thinking the same thing, and this then goes into where I'm teaching, which is the kind of further side of creativity, which is about branding and marketing and all those kind of things, then you'll notice recently, maybe in the last 10, 15 years, branding and marketing has become really dull. There's no interesting, exciting adverts or campaigns or nothing's happening. It's just, if it all works, just keep that system going. And it's almost like they're deliberately stopping us from having our own expression on things or using our imagination and now it's handing over to the algorithms and the AI and all those kind of things to do the creativity for us and that's not right either. That's a huge thing. It looks vile. Cityscape, I think that's what you call it. When you walk around large towns or cities, thankfully I don't really do that very much anymore, but when I used to, it looks awful. There's just big glass buildings everywhere and they're ugly. A lot of the architecture just seems so ugly and that Obviously, it's very rude of me because these people are obviously very clever. They've been to university. They're trained to be architects. They've been commissioned to make the shard or whatever. You know, you compare it to the Renaissance buildings and some of the most amazing pieces of architecture from history when they supposedly had less good tools, when supposedly they had equipment that wasn't necessarily especially helpful. The building, it was much more laborious. It took a lot more people. And yet I compare and contrast and just think, we're rubbish. We're we're imagination looks it's a, I don't know I, I don't have a critical eye for art it's not my area I'm dramatic art rather than physical art but even I can see that it just looks demonic it's all black and gray and just glass everywhere like where's this come from what's happened to us what's happened to beautiful architecture 
I think we've, as I said before, in kind of that era of the 60s and we had the kind of postmodernism, conceptual art, and that became something that was just so much more important when the Bauhaus kind of movement came in as well within art. That became, there was some interesting rules there, but a lot of it became very much about, less about beauty and more about function. And that's where we lost a lot of that ability to craft and to see craft as well. And so now if you go to an art school, a lot of the students don't have the skills or the craft to be able to create a beautiful sculpture where you take something marble or wood and you make that look like skin and flesh and clothing. And there's just none of that skill there anymore. And it's the same with all of the other areas. There's less of the ability to handle the tools that you're using. And again, that comes from way, way back in school. You're not able to actually use the tools properly because you never were allowed to play with them. And so now you have no ability. But in all schools, obviously, as well, we're starting to dumb down a lot of the grading and the results and the marks. And so they think that they're very good at what they're doing. But when you compare this to 100 years ago at art school, it's just completely different levels. And so the beauty has disappeared. And recently, actually, I was at Manchester Art Gallery and there's a particular picture I like there, a painting I like called Sappho. And behind it on the opposite wall is the Nymphs painting, which is quite a famous one. And that actually got removed because of some attitude towards it being very much dominated by the male gaze. And there was a lot of this kind of stuff. So anyway, that got removed. It was beautiful. Yeah, it was a beautiful painting. But Sappho is my absolute favourite. It's really dramatic. It's beautifully composed. The painting is fantastic. And it's just really brooding. And I remember when I first saw it, when I was maybe in my late teens, no, I must, yeah, late teens, 20s. And it was just vibrating on the wall because it was so exciting. And every time I go down to Manchester now, if I'm taking students for a visit or I happen to be going down, I go along to the gallery to go and see Sappho. And the last time I went down, and I just think it's a beautiful area because it's the Renaissance gallery. So it's all stunning paintings. And there's another amazing one with a chariot scene. And the whole thing is just full of life and it's dynamic and it's massive and it's so exciting. And I went into the room and hoping to get that same feeling. And they now had an installation video of someone screaming their way around the art gallery. They just recorded this. And it was just someone screaming and shouting and this kind of conceptual art sort of stuff. And it completely ruined that gallery, which has such a beautiful atmosphere. And I just thought, this is deliberate. They're making everything ugly, everything kind of. The beauty is being removed from everything. The kind of tranquility of art and just experiencing all of that is slowly being taken away. The quietness of sitting and looking at that painting. And yeah, it definitely feels deliberate that this is being trained out of kids now. And because quality in, quality out, isn't it? If you go and look at something beautiful, you'll then have that tuning your eye in and then you'll start to produce this beautiful sort of stuff coming out. And that seems to be disappearing, basically. Yeah, it's, it's you said earlier about memory skills. When you were talking just now, I couldn't take my mind off of it because that's another truly vital thing for human beings to have a good memory, to be able to pass on important information, useful information, and even things like creative ideas to one another. And if you're not encouraging strong memory skills for a very young age, that's extremely damaging later on. And that for me, I'm trying to be reasonable and I'm not very good at it. I suck at being reasonable because I can't see why you wouldn't be all over 
memory skills with young children and doing this through drawing and doing it professionally and properly. I was not taught anything. I was never taught how to draw at all. I think I did art up to the age of year nine. So what's that? 13 years old about because I had to. And I was never taught a single thing in all of those classes that I went to. And I learned how to colour beautifully. How? Because I copied the girl next to me, Heather. I sat next to Heather and she was a beat. She was, she'd get lots of different, she'd get, if, you, if she was colouring something red, she'd get like a yellow, two different shades of red and an orange. And I was like, oh, I should do that. So I did. And then for the next six months, the art teacher, Mr. Nunes, is trying to chase me to take GCSE art. I can't draw a stick man. I couldn't draw a stick man then and I can't draw one now. And yet because I'd copied, I didn't copy her picture. I had a completely different picture because my drawing wasn't very good. But the colouring was beautiful because I'd learned how to colour off another student. It's the only thing I ever learned in art. And earlier you said about how you hold a pencil. There's different ways to hold a pencil depending on what you want. Never been shown, definitely never been shown any of that. I know that there's a lack of quality, but is there something else going on in our education that we should be aware of? I think they're so busy focused on making sure they meet all of the criteria for education now as well, I think. And that's the other thing that kind of comes through. So while we're busy trying to just get students to think for themselves and to create and express, we're dictated to by different stipulations within our teaching. So we have to include certain elements. So there has to be sustainability. We have to include, I can't even think what it is now, the UN's 15 point plan of whatever happens in 2030 or something. I can't remember. But all that has to come into, you can see that I'm really, I'm really bothered about it. (laughs) But I never include any of it in any of the lessons because there's just so much that you're trying to do that you don't need to be including all this stuff that just doesn't get students being creative. It's too busy working to an agenda. And all of these things get in the way. We're just not thinking about the basics of how we teach and, and all of these government-based things are coming into education and people are getting funding for working with these things. So actually a lot of the arts projects that you see now will be funded by council or government-funded or we have Creative Scotland and there's all these things, but they're all asking you to work to an agenda. That's why you get the funding. So there's been certain projects I've done and I haven't got funding because they don't see it as worthy enough. But for me, it's a very interesting thing to do. And I actually did a project with, I don't know if you know, Heterodox Academy. So it was started with Jonathan Haidt, who wrote The Coddling of the American Mind. And he started this up as a kind of counter to the current state of education. And I was, and really sadly, when I contacted them, they were really excited because I was applying for funding. I wanted to do a project about critical thinking. And I was the only Scottish member of this academy. There was nobody else doing that. And that's really worrying that I was the only person that had decided that that would be a good thing to join and get funding from. And it was the same with a couple of other things that they'd mentioned. They were trying to put me in contact with people, but the nearest people, for them, they were American. The nearest people they could find were down in London. And when you're, you know, you're, you're hundreds of miles away, that's not local. <laughs> so yeah, it's interesting because it's just, it doesn't seem to be spreading amongst the teaching community. And you would think artists, and this is the discussion I had with them at the time, you would think that artists would be the ones rebelling and doing all the kind of counter stuff and none of that. It's all very, very compliant. Ooh, that word, compliant, gives me chills. Nothing more dangerous than a compliant person in my book. Vile. I heard you 
mentioned funding a few times there. And this is obviously a highly politicized part of working in a university. Could you talk a little bit about, a lot of people have no idea how this funding system works and how you have to apply for things. What is that like and what's the pressure like? It depends on which university you're at and every university, all lecturers have research time given to them. (laughs) Ideally, you should be researching the subjects that you really are interested in, but most people then find that they're steered towards researching towards specific things and they will get money for that. So in terms of areas that are studying science, they will get money from Big Pharma to research certain things that they want them to research. And it's exactly the same within arts funding. So if you apply for funding, you're probably going to get it from one of the larger bodies within the UK. I don't know about other places, but within the UK, you'll definitely get it from larger bodies, which are government controlled, which means that they all have an agenda. And if you meet specific targets, and that'll be maybe something to do with LGBT, or it'll be something to do with energy on a sustainability level, you will definitely get that funding. And you'll have that money to go away and create a project, but it has to have all of those elements within it. And so there's no actual individual thought process on this. You're just working towards an agenda. So if you have something where you might actually like to consider something counter to that, and maybe you're opposing all of the climate emergency and all those kind of things, you will never get the money for that. There'll be no funding for that. So it's very much steering you and nudging you in a direction of teaching. And that's where the indoctrination comes in, particularly in universities. I'm not sure about within schools or further education, but definitely within university, the funding element is crucial for universities and they need to get their staff getting funding from these places as well. That's why everything is so drab and miserable and pathetic compared to what we used to produce artistically. The die religion, right? That's why it's called the die religion. It kills everything. Diversity, inclusion, equity. (laughs) Well, look what we've produced since oh how lovely another black square cube thing in a city center how nice it's supposed (laughs) to represent what exactly lovely very nice dear like i just i can imagine my mother going around she used to watch amateur dramatics and she'd be a an amdram critic and she'd have her opinions and that's one thing but i could imagine her going around if it had been art instead of dramatic art i can imagine it Rubbish, next, no, no good, <laughs> awful. What What a horrible costume. No, no, no. Why have we allowed this? It's so, so frustrating that everyone can see that it's crap. It's ugly. It's horrible. And Lovely. yet we're putting up with these things. And some of them go up in like city centres and in public places to show off the city. And you think, this is horrible. This doesn't represent our city. Disgusting. Are there funding targets? Do individual professors and lecturers have to bring in a certain amount of money per year? universities? So within the university, you'll have certain lecturers who are kind of the ones that bring in the research money, I suppose, more so. If you can bring in research money, fantastic. Any lecturer will be kind of targeted to do that. But there are ones that are specifically research academics, and they're the ones that are then not teaching necessarily. They are then going and actually seeking out funding all the time and trying to find places. But they know where to get the funding. The funding is always coming from And that's the thing. All the projects then become steered towards the things where they can get the funding. So everyone's working towards things that, because if you're a career academic, which is definitely not my bag, which is just wanting to crawl up the greasy pole and get to the top, then that's the kind of thing you would do. You would just deliberately go and find out projects. 
And unfortunately, the more you do that, the more kudos you have, the more you're respected and you become promoted. So then students think this must mean that you have more experience and you have more experience within that subject. And the students will then listen to that. And that's such a pity. It's a vicious cycle. There's no breaking it. The money is only available for government agenda. And when I say government agenda, I use that very loosely because it's obviously UN or WEF or whatever. Ultimately, probably all the same agenda. It all looks frighteningly similar. And therefore, if that's where the money is, that's naturally where professors are going to go, particularly the ones that are targeted that have to bring in money. They want to talk about sustainability with regard to art. Well, how about you sustain some freaking standards? How about we have some beautiful art sustained? Because all I see is decline. And I'm like, I freely admit I'm an ignorant person when it comes to beautiful art. I know what I like, but I make no claims to be any kind of art critic, heaven forbid. But um, I'd certainly like to go around some modern art galleries and tear it to pieces. If it's something that even I could do, it's not art. I, <laughs> that's my standard. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. And if you took a kid round, maybe three or four, who hadn't experienced an art gallery before, possibly, and you building ambition in them and you show them pictures, they will always pick the paintings that are beautiful and the craft is there because that's what they want to be. But if they see something that looks like another child has done it, they, do, they don't care about that. And that's the thing is just maybe a couple of stripes on a page for them. Well, that's easy. They could go home and do that right now. But when they see something that builds ambition and they see these amazing, beautiful paintings, then that's what they want to do. But then they get taught that that's old and that's not the kind of contemporary way of painting or being an artist or any of those things. And they're very much, I have a friend who is an amazing painter and he does some fantastic, really kind of Renaissance style painting. And when he was doing his master's, they kept trying to get him to change because because he had skill and he actually put the other tutors to shame because he had some great work and they tried to change it so that he became much more of a kind of conceptual artist. That just wasn't his thing. He had a, an amazing talent for doing that. But it's amazing that they want to just kind of change that all the time and they want to take out all of the skill and the craft and the quality and just bring everyone down to a really basic level. You don't want anyone thinking. You don't want anyone doing anything different and being independent because that leads to people starting to question everything then and they don't want that. Yeah, it's like the withdrawal of aspiration. Almost as if aspiration is a sin or some kind of crime. Oh, you mustn't aspire to be like a Renaissance artist. Heaven forbid. As far as I'm concerned, I think we need another Renaissance. I think it's about time we had another one. The big style this time, please, even bigger. Because it seems to me that people who aren't even very good at art would now be able to get onto courses at university because it's all conceptual art. It's all about how I identify within my art, whatever. Like it seems to me like weaselly. It's like lacking the kind of, you don't have to have any actual talent or real hardcore art skills. It would seem that some people can kind of get away with that because they'll say, oh, I threw a bucket of paint over a white sheet. It's modern art. Hooray. Like I just think that's such a shame. And then on the other hand, you've also described a gentleman who, was a fantastic painter, beautiful artist, and they're trying to drag him down into the mud to be a conceptual artist, i.e. an artist without that much talent, really. I'm not saying that about all conceptual artists. I can't. I'm not an art critic. It seems like they're burning the candle from both ends. They're they're trying to get you either which way. Oh, come in, you're talentless, be a conceptual artist. Oh, you've got talent. Well, we'll make sure you you don't use those skills here. 
why would anybody, why would any person who loves art do that Mm -hmm. to a student? Why? Well, it could possibly be the lack of talent in the tutor that's teaching as well. There's the there is jealousy, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's an element of that. But the other thing is, I think that well, it's the same as everything, isn't it? They demonise anything that is different. So if someone's standing out, then they demonise that, and we've seen that during coronavirus and the COVID stuff. And they're very much kind of trying to get people to think exactly the same and if they can do that they control you so it's the same in art if they can control you and you actually don't have much talent you're reliant on funding coming in and getting money and to get that money then you'll do the right stuff so that you can get the money and it's just this horrible cycle of rubbish (laughs) we can get them can't we though because that isn't diversity if you're not if you're not allowing those renaissance painters or the the oldie worldie kind of painters, actually you know real painters who can actually paint then there'd be anti-diversity. See, I don't think they can have it both ways for very much longer. There's too many of these things where I go, hang on a minute, I thought we're into diversity this week or this year or this decade, whatever. So tell you what, here's some diversity. Stick your conceptual art where the sun don't shine. I'm going to learn actually how to paint a beautiful seaside portrait. But then they'll sort of bring in the decolonizing the curriculum, which is what we're currently going through, decolonizing art and design. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's Please another. explain. I've got a look of horror on my face, but we're not recording video. Please do explain, for the benefit of the listeners, what on earth decolonizing an art curriculum looks like. To be honest, I have no idea either. I don't know how you decolonize art and design in the slightest. When you look back at <laughs> the journey that that's taken and where it's come from, it's very difficult to decolonize any of that. If you look at, in particular, like we've spoken about the Renaissance, if you look at the skill and the beauty that was coming from that, it was all coming from mainland Europe and the UK. That's where it was all kind of appearing from, all of the different Renaissance categories. So but you can't remove that. That was such a huge thrust to art becoming what it is that we knew up until the 60s. It was all the kind of thrust for that. So yeah, you can't decolonize these things. And within design, so the kind of stuff that I'm doing, a lot of the stuff, again, has come from... Well, the UK is the kind of forerunner for a lot of graphic design. There's lots of interesting stuff comes out of filmmaking and branding, marketing. Lots of people send their students to the UK to study design. I don't know why now, but the, <laughs> in the past, it was always a good subject to, to study. And the UK has been great at that. But what I've noticed is a decline now in just everything that we're looking at. Copy, copywriting for adverts, you know, fantastic copywriting in the Mad Men era of the 60s, you know, 50s, 60s, amazing copywriting, amazing storyboarding, amazing adverts that you saw. And that slowly disappeared. And we had a heyday in the 90s as well, where there were some fantastic things. I was speaking to the students the other day. Do you remember the Cadbury's advert with the gorilla playing to Phil Collins as something in the air, I think it was. And yeah, the gorilla, the Cadbury's gorilla bashing these drums. And it was just surreal, but amazing and really experimental and imaginative. And there were some fantastic thought processes going on there. And now we've kind of lost that and we've been taken over with, well, everyone's in the internet, social media era now. And there's just constant sort of staying within their lane and not changing or doing anything radical. It's crazy, this concept of decolonization. In academic terms, it's complete nonsense because, tell you what, why don't we decolonize the 100 metres? What about (laughs) marathon running? They don't want to do that, do they? And they don't, it's funny, doesn't it? They don't want to do that in the PE department, do they? In the sports department. Can anyone think of a reason <laughs> no. for that? 
Is it because it's blatantly obvious who the best is? Right. Okay. So that's we've. I'm glad we've established that. So in a subject like art, though, you've actually got even more chances. So say you're not the best. If you're going to be the best hundred meter sprinter in the world, then you're going to have to run a you know a sub ten second hundred meters, right? You're going to have to do that. And and you know the guy, the men now are pushing nine seconds, aren't they? So that's a very very narrow thing to aim for. Obviously, only a very very tiny 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 fraction of a percent of a of the population are going to even have a chance of getting anywhere near that. And most of them will be from certain parts of the world. That's just how it is. That's just physiology. It's tough. I always make the point that I'm never going to be a high jumper. I'm five foot one. Doesn't matter how hard I try. Should we decolonize the high jump? <laughs> Let short people have a go. If you'll, you know, run with that. But it seems crazy to me because art is more perhaps subjective than 100 meters, let's say. If you take 10 paintings, well, we could argue about which is the best. Probably there'd be some consensus around the top 10 painters of history. But if you're just taking any 10 paintings, there'd be a real argument about which is the best painting. There's no argument about who is the best sprinter. It's clinical. There's a finish line. There's a stopwatch, the end. So I just think that all of these policies that are built on fake and phony ideology need to go right into the dustbin. Because, okay, if we're going to decolonize art, let's decolonize the 100 meters. Come on, let's do the PE department. While we're at it, let's do maths. Oh, no, you don't want to do that either. Mm, That's funny, isn't it? Yeah, because also with maths, there are some parts of mathematics where there is some subjectivity. But at the level I've been to, certainly not. It's all bang. It's all completely objective. You either can do it or you cannot. You get up with your pen on that whiteboard. You can either do the proof Mm -hmm. or you can't. Mm -hmm. And that's you've got to, at some point, you've got to get up and do it. This is what they're, trying to stop. They're trying to stop hard lines in the sand where this person can and this person cannot. They're trying to blur things, but they've got real problems because there's certain subjects where they just can't get away with it. Oh yeah, let's decolonize the Renaissance art. What? What? (laughs) Stupid. That's beyond stupid. And the same with things like PE and mathematics. And there are other examples of this as well in some of the like neuroscience, some of the stuff that's extremely difficult to study that even only a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of one, you know, one group of people would be able to do that anyway. I just, I find it extraordinary that we've gotten to here. How do we begin to reverse this? Because this cannot continue. We're destroying everything. We're we're destroying art. We're destroying enjoyment, music, theatre, everything. How do we reverse it? What do we do? I think it has to change with the kind of stuff that you're doing, Sarah, as well, which is coming away from the traditional education model that we've got. And universities and colleges, I'm not sure how much longer they've got, really. Our numbers are declining all the time in people who are coming to study. And that's the same for schools. There's lots more people I know now are homeschooling than I've known before. But a lot of parents are, I suppose, a little bit worried about teaching things that are maybe out with what they know so for instance creativity and art and a lot of people because they didn't have that at school then like yourself they think oh I can't draw or I can't do whatever and so that's very difficult to pass on to a kid that's showing some sort of skill within that as well so yeah I think there's definitely within the teaching community it's really interesting various groups that you speak to they're starting to rebel against this and there's a lot of teachers who are starting to feel that they need to step away from the traditional state education and start teaching for homeschooling or creating something that means people have access to facilities and tools that help them pass that on to their kids. But ultimately, kids, 
the best place for them is with their families and learning from their families and having the little bits and pieces that come in maybe from people outside who have a bit more knowledge about those things. I think that's the best way. Going to somewhere to then be taught how to be creative, when you think about it, it's just really, really strange. You can't teach innovation or creativity. It kind of just happens. But what you can do is you can nurture it and you can instill some values and in tuning eyes into things. But they just they have to do that themselves and they have to do that with skills with teachers who are willing to do that, not just push an agenda all the time. It's very interesting that you make the point about home education. Thinking about it, I've got a high proportion of home educating parents who are talented in the art and design and or making like textiles area. Just thinking off the top of my head of the people who are like hardcore gorilla editors. We've got painters, we've got drawers, we've got graphic designers, we have children who love to draw cartoons, budding cartoonists. And when I do meetings on a Thursday night, loads of people have got are there with their sewing or with their knitting or their crocheting. And then they're doing that whilst listening and talking and getting their social as well. And it struck me that there's something about people who have a passion or a talent for some form of art, doesn't matter what form, whether it's dramatic, but it happens in this case largely to be stuff that people do with their hands and okay. making things or drawing things. These are the people that seem to have stepped away from the mainstream education system first, like the pioneering. What is it perhaps about that? Is it the artistic spirit? What is it about artists that might make them more likely to step away from mainstream institutions, rotten institutions, I might add? It could be the fact that when you're making and doing and you're keeping your mind active through your hands and you're thinking about these things, that it makes you think about everything and it makes you question other things as well. And that's the important part that's missing when we've got students in university. A lot of the time, and I know this from what you speak about, which is, you know, the kind of two and a half hours, three hours that you set aside each day, because in comparison to education, which is seven or eight hours in a building, they're not getting that amount of teaching. And it's the same in university. So you might send your children off to university, but they're not sitting in lectures and they're not sitting in classes day in, day out. They're given assignments or they're given something to do and then they have to go away and come back afterwards. And so it's very limited. I worked out that a student will get about eight minutes of my time a term. That's it. <laughs> because you're in huge lecture theatres or you're with large cohorts that you could, you don't have time to go around them all. And the thing with art and design is you need that time to sit, whether you're knitting or crocheting, you need to find out, you need to work out what your tools are and what you're playing with. And the university just doesn't make time for that. What it does is it breaks things up into chunks and you have, well, for us, our semesters are two semesters and then the students are off between May and September. And by the time they come back in September, we've lost everything that we were doing there. All the kind of stuff that we were getting confidence built up and all those kind of things. If you're constantly working away at something, then you get better at it. And it also allows your mind to expand and grow and all these skills and things as well. So I think the kind of people that are stepping away are tired of those kind of models and systems of working. And often they'll have worked in it if you're getting designers and people that have worked in these situations, they'll know sitting being screen-based in comparison to making with your hands is very, very different. You know, and using digital tools is a very different thing from actually using your hands as well. And our students find out things using their hands. We, we did a prototype for an app 
and we actually got them to make it out of cardboard and they had to change the screen manually with this bit of paper that they did. And then they kind of took it around other students and tested it. And using their hands and playing with that prototype, it gave them so much more insight than it did if they'd done that on a bit of software. And so, yeah, it's about using your mind and imagination. And I think that's the kind of people that are stepping away because they know what's they know what's coming. <laughs> it's a hell of an expensive eight minutes a term, isn't it? It's very <laughs> well. Yeah, in, in Scotland it's free because we're utilising ah. the uh, Westminster government. <laughs> <laughs> kind of <And> free, <laughs> pretending that we're uh, <laughs> we're giving free education, but we're actually nabbing it from Westminster. That's a different story. But yeah, it is for England and all the other places that are paying. Yes, it's very expensive. Eight minutes a term. I keep trying to tell people they don't listen to me, but I'm serious. If you spend two hours, two quality hours a day, perhaps split up an hour here and two hours there or 45, split it up however. But if you actually give that high quality tuition to your children in the really important stuff, the five R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, morality and articulation, really important, being able to speak, vital actually. If you focus on those things, that's way more than they're getting in the mainstream indoctrination centres anyway, hands down. And then children always want, once they've done their hardcore maths and English, let's say, their numeracy and literacy, they're always wanting to go off and explore this or, oh, I want to read a book on, what's that game they play? Minecraft. Like, okay, okay, I don't like that sort of thing. I don't think it's ideal, but at least it inspires them to want to read because then it helps them learn to do something better. So I, I'll take it at, at that level. And I, I just think, They're going to then self-teach and they're going to do the things they're most passionate or or insatiably curious about. And that's where real learning is done, isn't it? And I just, I wish people would listen to the likes of us when we're telling them our own experiences from the lecture theatre, from the art room, from the classroom. Like we're telling you, we're telling you what happens in our classrooms. Please listen to us. This is hurting your children. Speaking of which, just talk us through We've spoken previously about the kinds of students that are coming now to university at your first years and what kind of state are they in when they get to you? It depends. And this is where I've noticed and this is why I've started to step away from state education as much because we were finding that our homeschooled students who were coming to art school were fantastic. They had much better ability to speak to us as adults. They could kind of cope better with living away from home they were managing things better. They often appeared different because of that. And I think people think, oh, homeschool kids are always a bit weird. They're not actually. They're just able to articulate and speak much, much better, much clearer. And they're much better at speaking to adults. And that can feel strange because you're so used to young people being monosyllabic and not really saying very much and not able to speak to adults, being a bit stroppy, because that's what they get taught through school. And so when they're coming out of school, they've been taught that there's an authority that is an older person and they've been taught to stick in their groups. So you always speak to people who are of your age group. You're suspicious of anyone outside of your age group. And so I find that they find it really difficult to empathise with. And my main area within design is empathising. So I might have to design something for a 70 year old man and I have to work out how does that person feel? How does that work for them? You know, what works for them? And they can't do that. They can only design for 18 to 24 year olds because they have no concept of how to empathise with somebody else. So there's that element of it. They have no confidence. They are unable to write particularly well. Spelling is atrocious. They're 
annotation of any of their thinking and any of their thoughts when they're designing is really, really poor. They can't sit for very long in a lecture that's maybe only 20 to 25 minutes long. The whole time now in lectures, they're allowed to sit with their laptops and their tablets and they're busy on that. They're busy chatting. The lecture theatre isn't a quiet place anymore where you're just... And I don't think you should always have someone just standing dictating to you the whole time, but sometimes you've got to push information to them they're unaware of and they can't do that. They can't listen to things. Yesterday I was doing a 30-minute talk and it was busy and it was fast and I was showing them lots of slides, but I could see most of them had drifted off to their tablets. They were looking at that and they were speaking and you just don't have time to check everybody because there's so many in the lecture theatre. So yeah, there's lots of things that are, they're anxious, they have all have some sort of mental health thing. They've all been made aware that they, if they don't have that, they feel like, I don't know if they feel like they've failed something if they don't have a label, you know, so they're all coming with labels and various things. And they're so kind of focused on that. They're not even thinking about just getting on with the learning and the enjoyment of just finding out stuff. What have these people got to be anxious about? I'm sorry, people younger than them were, you know, getting blown to bits in World War One in the trenches. Not that I'm advocating for that you know, <laughs> on the contrary. But my point is, what were the most privileged, overfed, mollycoddle people ever in the history of the world? If the history of the world is as we have been led to believe it is, we'll run with that for now. But with the most, quote, to use their words, we're the most privileged people ever. So what the hell have they got to be anxious about exactly? I think, though, and this is where I slightly differ from other people who feel like that. We've taught them to be like that. We've taught, we've allowed that to happen. And if you're allowing that to happen, they don't know any different and they don't know how to do anything different. So they're so reliant on this world, which is digital and screen based, and they don't understand how to. So they can go and find something in the library, for instance. It all comes from, unfortunately, from Google, but it's all coming from. And they're always big tech. It's always big tech being used. And the students are now using apps for their attendance. They're being tracked all the time. I didn't realise that parents track their kids so much on phones and where they are and things as well. So that's interesting that they feel like the world is even more unsafe than it was 30 years ago or whatever, because there's this constant fear that we're pushing and this message that, you know, we need to know where you are. We need to know what you're doing. We've got safe spaces. We've got trigger warnings and, and it's all these things yeah exactly <laughs> and it's all these warnings that we're getting and giving them I just feel I actually feel really sorry for them because they're they have no capacity to think for themselves that's your empathy again that's your empathetic side coming out <laughs> I had one the other day I was teaching a teenager the other day mathematics one-to-one and we were discussing that negative numbers weren't going well enough for my liking this young man's about 14 so they should be sorted by now. And I set him a lot of remedial homework, let's just say, to sort that problem out. However, I said, well, at least your multiplication tables are decent because I've been working with him long enough to know that he's got his tables down. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but I meet so many 15, 16 year olds who don't. They just don't know their tables. They don't know their multiplication tables. They don't know what eight eights are. They don't know what nine threes are. They don't actually know these things. I know that sounds crazy. I don't work with people who have extremely complicated needs because I only have a very small number of classes available, so I give them to the people who are going to make the most progress and make the best use of it. So I'm working with quite bright people, and yet they don't know their tables. I know this young man does, and I said to him, seven eights, and he went, oh, you put me on the spot now. I'm like, yes, I'm a maths teacher. That's my job. What? I managed to remain relatively calm 
my poor husband got it in the neck immediately at the end of that class because I had to just offload. But what has happened to us that young people are almost affronted that a mathematics teacher demands to know what seven eights are on the spot? He's doing higher tier GCSE. He's a bright boy. It's the same as we have to, obviously, when as a designer, we're teaching them how to pitch. They have to pitch their ideas. And now we give them three options. One, they pitch in the class in front of everybody. Two, they can pitch like this via an online call with a small group. Three, they record their pitch in front of nobody and just send it in. That's the three options that they have. Now, as a designer, you're going to have to go and speak about your work. You can't, you have to give your work away as a designer. You can't be precious and hold on to your work. You have to kill your darlings as as we always remind them. And they have to get rid of being precious about their work because that is owned by the client. And so the client will want you to pitch to them. I don't know how they're going to manage to speak to the client if they can't speak to anybody at all and they can't articulate any of their ideas, they can't discuss their work and they find it really difficult. And their excuse is, oh, I get really anxious, so I'm not doing this. And they just back out. And there's no pushback. They're just allowed to do that and walk away from this. So some people are leaving with a degree in that specific area that they can't do the job. And that's what industry are complaining about now. They're complaining that And I know this happens in a lot of different areas, but particularly within our industry, students have no ability to articulate their ideas. They can't get across what they're thinking at all. It's because they've been allowed to get away with it for all the years before they even get to university. At university, they shouldn't want to quote unquote get away with it. They should be much more mature and professional. But I work with quite a lot of young children. I tend to work with the parents of the young children, if I'm really honest. I keep the little ones to a minimum blood pressure reasons. But if you're not exposing your son or daughter to quote-unquote pressure situations in a relatively safe environment from a very young age, you're failing your children because it's never going to get any easier. If you don't start slowly introducing them to stress factors, then they are just going to become these cotton wool, anxious, useless blobs who can't do anything. They can't speak to anybody. Even if they've got a, a precious talent, the world's never going to see it because they can't articulate, they can't communicate in other appropriate manners. Like you were saying before about home-educated people know how to speak to adults, it's really important. It's a massive life skill, ladies and gentlemen. Like, Why wouldn't you want your children to have that? It's perhaps even more important than the talent in some cases, because sometimes you might have this wonderful talent, but if you can't behave or turn up on time and speak clearly to another adult, no one's ever going to see your talent anyway. So I might be slightly less talented, But because I show up on time, I do my work, I do my homework, and I'm polite and respectful most of the time. (laughs) Depends on the rules. You know how that works, right? I'm going to get more of an opportunity, aren't I? I just don't understand the thinking is is so warped. I think actually parents are really not helping their own children with this. What would you say with regards to your experiences at university? Is the damage being done before they even get there? Definitely. Definitely throughout school it's happening, but the parents sometimes are part of that as well and what I find even more shocking now at university thankfully it's never been that we've had parent nights or anything at university thank god because that would be awful but and I really feel sorry for school teachers have to do that but we noticed that parents are so much more involved now they're so much more I will get emails from parents wanting to ask about their students and it's almost this arrested development because when I was going to university I remember my mum was really upset that I was so excited to, to to leave and get away at 17. And it was just such an amazing world to go and explore. 
live with friends, have flatmates, make all the mistakes that you make, don't tell your parents. It was all that kind of stuff that you were doing. And now their parents are very much involved in those parts of their life. And it is, it's that kind of arrested development. They're not, they're staying like they're about 15 for until they're 22, 23, 24. And they're not growing up and they're not kind of taking responsibility. It's still being handed over to the parents. A DPO mother who refuses to let go of her son, refuses, refuses and destroy. Yeah, absolutely. It's Jordan Peterson talks about that all the time. And he's, you know, he might not be right about everything, but he's spot on with that. Certainly. Yeah. What's the role? I'm I'm going to look to wrap up because I've been really generous with your time this morning. Thank you so much. I just wanted to ask one last question about the effect that software, you mentioned the tablets and the lecture theatre or the laptops. And, oh, I would ring, I would not allow that. I know that the rules might be, well, I would leave because I could not have that. My classroom, you shut up and you listen to me. Otherwise, why are you here? Like, I don't, I can't even comprehend what that must be like. But what role do you think tech has played in producing this generation of jelly, generation jelly babies? Well, <laughs> what role do you think it's played? I think we're in the middle of that. And yesterday I was speaking to them Interestingly, I was speaking to them about, I don't know if you're familiar with Marshall McLuhan's The Medium is the Message at all, the book that was 1960s, I think it was. We were speaking about that and we were speaking about the fact that he was warning us way, way back what was about to happen. And now we're in the middle of it. And I was trying to get them to understand various things about the way that they consume, how they manage their information, whether they're actually, who's fact-checking the fact-checkers? Who's checking this information? Who's even who's right, who's wrong, where are we getting any of this information from? And the students were saying they get all their news from Twitter or TikTok or social media applications. And then we said, so how do you know your news is right? And they couldn't fathom where else they could get their news or information from. They couldn't find other avenues. And I think that's it's definitely become our younger population are very much in that hive mind and I know that happens anyway. As a teenager, you kind of don't want to stand out. You want to, well, most people don't want to stand out. They want to kind of just be in with their tribe and their group and they don't want to make a fool of themselves. But it's amplified with social media. And so it's become really divisive. It's one side or the other. It's black and it's white. And for a generation that are very much about being gender fluid and non-binary, they're incredibly binary. They're incredibly this or that. And that's it. There's no gray areas. There's no nuance or anything at all. And I think that's been the biggest downfall. I think there's amazing things about tech and amazing things that it's helped us to do. But we need to learn to control it rather than it controlling us. And that's the warning I was trying to give the students, that they need to learn how to control the tech so that it doesn't control them. And they're the ones in charge. And they're finding out the information as opposed to it finding out the information for you or about you, which is even worse. So that's what we were trying to discuss. But that's just, that's one discussion against all the other stuff. The irony is they were too busy playing on their tablets, phones (laughs) and laptops to even (laughs) listen to the warnings, right? Yeah, (laughs) playing, you know, Candy Crush or whatever the goons (laughs) play when they're supposed to be studying. Fantastic. Listen, that's wonderful. Thank you very, very much indeed for this interview. I really appreciate the time that you've taken and just so thoughtful. So many things, you know, we're teaching the creativity out of the children and the fact that we're not even starting off properly with drawing and the disrespect of it as a subject. I'll never forget, I'll go, if you're good and finish your real work, you can go and draw. How how rude <laughs> and how ignorant at best. And that's at best, isn't it? But I, I think you're right. I think there is something more to it. And we have lost that notion of beauty. I think you put it 
best before. We've, we've lost that notion of beauty and it's something that we need to get back and quickly. Thank you for joining me. Is there anything else that you would like to add that I haven't maybe asked the right question or something I didn't think of, something I haven't thought of? Is there anything else that you'd like to leave us with? No, I don't think so. I think that was that was really, thank you for having me. That was just a really nice discussion as well. It was good to be able to speak about these things because it's very difficult in academia. <laughs> oh, yes. Hence, ladies and gentlemen, the Secret Art Professor, thank you very much indeed for joining me. And for those of you who are interested in being a little bit more creative, I have a free Write Cursive workshop coming up on Saturday, the 25th of March. That's a full day workshop, Saturday, 25th of March, 9.30 till 4. It's via Zoom and it's completely free. So if you would like to attend, then you can just send me a little email at sarahplumleyuk at gmail.com. That's sarahplumleyuk at gmail.com and I will add you to the list. And believe me, if I have been taught to write beautifully and if I can be taught, then you can definitely be taught too. And I'm sure you'll be tons better than me. I'm, I was definitely a bottom of the class, but I have beautiful handwriting now, so no excuses. Get yourself along Saturday, 25th of March to Write Cursive and you can sign up at sarahplumleyuk at gmail.com. Secret Art Professor, thank you very much indeed. Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit sarahplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination.